my dear sisters, both young and not so young, speaking to you for a few minutes tonight is a distinct honor for me. I pray that the Lord will bless me, that my remarks will be helpful to each one of you. I am aware that you are a very diverse audience. Tonight I see beautiful young and innocent faces shining with a zest for living. I also see white-haired grandmothers who radiate a genuine love for the Lord. Undoubtedly, some of you are newly baptized members, while others have spent their lifetime in faithful service to the Church. Among you are those who are married and those who are single, those who are divorced and raising your children alone, and those who are widows. Many of you are healthy and happy are in, and are in tune spiritually, while others bear the burdens of poor health and loneliness and may be struggling to find peace of mind. Some of you very likely are striving to be supermoms. You feel a need to spend time with your husband and children. You want to be sure to have family prayer, read the scriptures, and have family home evening. You also feel the need to help children with homework and music lessons, keep your home presentable, prepare nutritious meals, keep clothes clean and mended, chauffeur children and possibly their friends to school and to a variety of lessons, practices, and games, and keep everyone in the family on schedule, making sure that they are where they should be when they should be there. And that is all within your family and home. It makes me weary just reviewing all of this. <laughs> it doesn't include PTA, volunteer service, caring for family members who are ill or aged. You feel the need to protect your family from the many evil influences in the world, such as suggestive television, films and videos, alcohol, drugs, and pornography. You are committed to and faithfully fulfill your Church callings. In addition, many of you must earn a living because financial pressures are real and cannot be ignored. If anything is left or neglected, you may feel that you have failed. To you who feel harried and overwhelmed and who wonder whether you ever will be able to run fast enough to catch the departing train you think you must be on, I suggest that you learn to deal with each day as it comes doing the best you can without feelings of guilt or inadequacy. I saw a bumper sticker the other day, sisters, that may say it all. Quote, God put me on earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now I'm so far behind I will never die. <laughs> Remember, sisters, we all have our own challenges to work out while passing the test of mortality and probably often think ours are the most difficult. Re <clears throat> recognize limitations. No one can do everything. When you, have had, when you have done the best you can, be satisfied and don't look back and second-guess, wondering how you could have done more. Be at peace within yourselves. Rather than berate yourself for what you didn't do, Congratulate yourself for what you did. 
I give this counsel to my own five daughters and two daughters-in-law when they worry over whether they are accomplishing all they think they should. Remember, our Heavenly Father never expects more of us than we can do. If your husband and children need this reminder, then feel free to share this counsel with them. <laughs> Regardless of your present circumstances, you devoted women in this great sisterhood throughout the world are in your unique way performing a remarkable service in helping to establish and strengthen the Church. Women play a crucial role in helping people accept the gospel and establish firm testimonies in their hearts. Faithful women and young women who have recently joined the Church already are assisting in the work in many newly opened countries in Eastern Europe, including the Soviet Union. The work rolls forward in the vast continent of Africa and is hastened through the service of faithful women. Righteous women join the Church in Asia and help to strengthen it in their own lands. Many wonderful women valiantly serve the Lord in Latin America and on the islands of the sea. In fact, dear sisters, your influence for good is felt in 135 countries and territories where the gospel is now being taught. The strength of this Church from its beginning in 1830 has been and will continue to be enhanced through the faithful service of good women and young women like you. To each and every one of you, please know how much your leaders love you and pray for you. Also know that we understand your challenges and be assured that regardless of your circumstances at the moment, each one of you is precious to your Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The general officers of the Church travel throughout the nations of the earth, listening, teaching, and testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel. As we visit the members, we recognize the positive influence you dear sisters have upon this great work. We know you are loyal to the Church and you love the Lord. We feel your sustaining influence. Be patient with the brethren and know that the general authorities are teaching priesthood leaders in stakes and wards to listen to you and to counsel with you on matters pertaining to the needs of young and older women. Your opinions are valuable, even essential, to the brethren because no one else has your perspective and insights. You have much to offer in strengthening the homes and families of the Church. We marvel at your strength. We value your service, and we rejoice in your faithful quest for eternal life. Through your faith and personal righteousness in keeping the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can qualify for all the blessings our Heavenly Father has promised to His obedient children. Some of you may not have an opportunity in mortality to fulfill every righteous desire of your heart, but you can be certain that no eternal blessing will be denied you if you remain faithful and live the principles of the gospel throughout your earthly life. From time to time, leaders of the Church endeavor to give you guidance for your spiritual and temporal welfare. One principle that we teach repeatedly 
is the value of the precious freedom the Lord has given to you to make your own decisions. Moral agency enables the children of God to choose what they will believe and how they will live in mortality. Based on your obedience and living gospel principles, you will be judged according to your works. With the marvelous gift of moral agency, you can study the scriptures and the teachings of the leaders of the Church and, through the promptings of the Spirit, make correct choices that will bring peace and eternal joy to your souls. Most of you are familiar with Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables. A modern composer has brought that story to the musical stage where he chronicles the consequences that grow out of a lifetime of choices, some wrong, but many gloriously right. The central character, Jean Valjean, is sentenced to a life of hard labor for stealing a bit of bread to keep his loved ones from starvation. Escaping prison, he finds food and a night's refuge in the home of a priest. Bitter and hopeless, he slips away before dawn, taking with him a silver candlestick from the rectory table. The police apprehend him and ask the priest to identify the candlestick as stolen property. He tells them that not only was the candlestick given freely, but that Valjean had forgotten its twin. Grateful and humbled, Jean vows to live a life of service to God and his fellow man. Years later, in a case of mistaken identity, a man is ordered to serve Jean Valjean's sentence. Jean now must make a seemingly impossible choice. He reviews in his mind the consequences if he chooses to step forward, identify himself, and serve his own sentence. By now he has become very successful. He employs thousands. They will be jobless. He is the mayor, and his town will suffer. He has been benefactor to many and will have no advocate. Then they will have no advocate. Surely he is justified if he remains silent. From the depth of his soul we hear the song's refrain. Can I condemn this man to slavery, pretend I do not see his agony? Can I conceal myself forevermore if I am condemned? If I, stay, if I speak, I am condemned. If I stay silent, I am damned. And out of despair we hear his decision. My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Faced with the ageless question, Who am I? And recognizing that if he does not speak, the one betrayed will be himself, he answers, Who am I? Jean Valjean. Now, my dear sisters, each one of you will be required repeatedly to ask the question, Who am I? I know of no better answer for the women of the Church than the one found in the Young Women theme. We are the daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us, and we love Him. We will stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all places, things and in all places, as we strive to live the Young Women's values, which are 
faith, divine nature, individual worth, knowledge, choice, and accountability, good works, and integrity. If we believe as we come to accept and act upon these values, we will be prepared to make and keep sacred covenants, receive the ordinances of the temple, and enjoy the blessings of exaltation. In my judgment, this is an inspired statement, and if understood and followed by all of our Father's children, this would be a much better world. If you live by these truths, you will not be carried along with the stream of women who do not seem to know who they are, their reason for being, or their prominent role in the plan of salvation. In 1979, President Spencer W. Kimball addressed the women of the Church, just as I am doing tonight. At that time, speaking as the prophet of God, using words that are truly prophetic, he proclaimed, Much of the major growth that is coming to the Church in the last days will come because many of the good women of the world, in whom there is often such an inner sense of spirituality, will be drawn to the Church in large numbers. This will happen to the degree that the women of the Church reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives. Thus it will be that female exemplars of the Church will be a significant force in both the numerical and the spiritual growth of the Church in the last days." What an ennobling phrase, my beloved sisters. Female exemplars. What a glorious promise to know that you can strengthen all those around you. Young women, last October I spoke to the men in the priesthood session of General Conference, talking to them primarily about morals. I told the young men to cultivate a considerate attitude toward women of all ages. I taught them to respect you, to show you common, sincere courtesy. I counseled them to never succumb to a feeling that peer pressure is a justification for any kind of moral transgression. Transgression of any kind is always accompanied by a loss of self-esteem. You young women have a responsibility to live exemplary lives so that the young men will respect your values and treat you as daughters of God deserve to be treated. Righteous daughters of God, our Eternal Father, are absolutely essential if the Church is to fulfill its destiny in preparing the earth for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you, dear sisters, that each one of you can be an example, a light to those around you. You are the daughters of your Heavenly Father who loves you. May each one of you manifest your love for Him through your righteous, exemplary lives. Always know in your hearts, dear sisters, that the Church is true. I testify to you that Jesus Christ lives, and He presides over this Church. President Benson is the prophet of the Lord. Heavenly Father and His beloved Son love the precious women of the Church, as do all of your leaders. May God bless you now and always is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
A relatively simple but significant event took place in Nauvoo, Illinois, on the 4th of August this year. After many months of careful planning, the descendants of Joseph Smith, Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith dedicated the refurbished Smith Cemetery and opened it to the public. As I attended the dedicatory services, my thoughts were centered on the remarkable contribution the family of Joseph Smith, Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith made towards the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was thinking especially of the prophet, his brother Hiram, and their parents. I believe the Smith family burial plot should have a special meaning to every member of the Church. We all want those who are interred there to rise up on Resurrection Day in a beautiful garden spot. The prophet said in a funeral sermon, I will tell you what I want if tomorrow I shall be called to lie in yonder tomb in the morning of the Resurrection, let me strike hands with my father and cry, My father, and he will say, My son, my son as soon as the rock rends and before we come out of our graves. And when the voice calls for the dead to arise, suppose I am laid by the side of my father. What would be the first joy of my heart? To meet my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, and when they are by my side, I embrace them and they me. Each person who has a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ should love and appreciate Joseph Smith, Jr., for he is the prophet and seer of the Lord who has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of man in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. The ancient prophet Nephi wrote that he was born of goodly parents. So was the prophet Joseph Smith. He once declared, Words and language are inadequate to express the gratitude that I owe to God for having given me so honorable a parentage. The Lord foreordained his father, Joseph Smith, Sr., who is spoken of in Holy Scriptures to be one of the earthly parents of the prophet. Joseph of Egypt prophesied that the Latter-day Seer whom God would raise up to do his work would be called Joseph, and his name would be after the name of his father. The heavenly messenger Moroni admonished young Joseph to go to his father following a glorious night of sacred instruction. In Joseph's words, this messenger commanded me to go to my father and tell him of the vision and the commandments which I had received. I obeyed. I returned to my father in the field and rehearsed the whole matter with him. He replied to me that it was of God and told me to go and do as the messenger had commanded. Joseph Smith, Sr. was in tune with the Spirit of the Lord. He knew that his young son spoke the truth. He not only believed the boy's words but encouraged him in the work he had been called to do. Joseph, Sr. endured ridicule and persecution 
because of his prophet's son's experiences and claims. Yet he was unwavering in his loving support and defended his son. He saw and handled the plates, the plates of gold from which the Book of Mormon was translated and testified throughout his life to the truthfulness of that sacred book. His name remains firmly affixed with those of the other witnesses to the Book of Mormon in the front pages of that second witness of Jesus Christ. On one occasion he was imprisoned and told he would be released if he would deny the Book of Mormon. Not only did he not deny it, but he converted two persons during his 30-day confinement. President Lorenzo Snow said, I do not know that any man among the saints was more loved than Father Smith, and when anyone was seriously sick, Father Smith would be called for, whether it was night or day. He was as noble and generous a man as I have ever known. At the time of his death, Joseph Smith, Sr. was described as a man faithful to his God and to the Church in every situation and under all circumstances through which he was called to pass. Just a few months following, following the passing from this life, the Lord revealed Joseph Smith, Sr. was in his presence, and blessed and holy is he, for he is mine. Indeed, Joseph Smith, Sr. played a vital role in establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. Perhaps less visible than the prophet's father, but equally important in the shaping and influencing his life was his mother, Lucy Mack Smith. Although this strong woman gave occasional leadership, her primary role appeared to be support to the family. She gave birth to eleven children and endured faithfully as all but four preceded her in death. During her life, she watched six of her immediate family and one grandson as, die as a result of ruthless mob violence and persecution. Lucy prepared herself early in her marriage to raise a prophet. On one occasion, she became seriously ill and the doctor said she would die. Lucy records that she made a solemn covenant with God that if He would let me live, I would endeavor to serve Him according to the best of my abilities. After a voice assured her that she would live, she told her mother, The Lord will let me live if I am faithful to the promise which I have made to Him to be a comfort to my mother, my husband, and my children. She gave continual encouragement, support, and strength to her son, Joseph the prophet. His mother was the first person with whom young Joseph shared some of his momentous experiences of the sacred grove. Years later, he shared with her the joy and relief he felt when the Lord allowed others to view the sacred plates of gold. Lucy wrote that, Joseph threw himself down beside me and exclaimed, You do not know how happy I am. The Lord has now caused the plates to be shown to three more besides myself. They have seen an angel, and they will have to bear witness to the truth of what I have said. 
For now they know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people, and I feel as if I was relieved of a burden which was almost too heavy for me to bear. The prophet's mother shared also in his sorrows, sufferings, and persecutions. One time a mob took Joseph and his brother Hiram prisoner and threatened to shoot them. The two brothers were confined under a cloth cover in a wagon. Their courageous mother risked her life and forced her way through the hostile mob to comfort her sons. Joseph and Hiram could not see their mother and could only extend a hand from under the confining cover. As Lucy's hand and the hands of her sons touched, the wagon drove off, literally tearing the sorrowing mother from her two sons. Her determination to testify to the restoration of the gospel may have led her to dictate her well-known history of Joseph Smith. This was a major undertaking in her day. The book's importance to the Church today is immeasurable. It contains many details of the Prophet Joseph's life that might never have been known otherwise. It stands as a monument to the devotion of Lucy Mack Smith and her family. Like great parents of all ages, Lucy turned to prayer for divine help to sustain her family. During the march from Ohio to Missouri, known as Zion's Camp, Joseph and Hiram were seriously ill with cholera, and their lives were almost taken. At one point, Hiram sprang to his feet and exclaimed, Joseph, we shall return to our families. I have had an open vision in which I saw Mother kneeling under an apple tree, and she is even now asking God in tears to spare our lives. The Spirit testifies that her prayers will be answered. In the exercise of agency and in the divine providence of God, Lucy's two sons, Joseph and Hiram, ultimately sealed their testimonies with their blood. As the grieving mother looked upon their lifeless remains, she cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken this family? As a kind blessing to a faithful mother, the Lord softened her grief and granted to her the peace that only God can bestow. A voice spoke to her soul. I have taken them to myself that they might have rest. Hiram Smith, older brother, friend, and mentor to the prophet, showed absolute, unequivocal love, loyalty, and allegiance to the Lord and to his younger brother Joseph. Their brotherhood may be unsurpassed. The scriptures tell us in life they were not divided, and in death they were not separated. Of Hiram, Joseph said, I could pray in my heart that all my brethren were like unto my beloved brother Hiram, who possesses the mildness of a lamb and the integrity of a Job, and in short, the meekness and humility of Christ. And I love him with a love that is stronger than death, for I have never had an occasion to rebuke him nor him me. Throughout Hiram's life, he guarded his younger brother as tenderly as if the prophet had been his own son. 
Joseph surely knew the value of true and faithful associates because he had trusted many who later proved to be false. In addition to Joseph's tribute, the Lord spoke of his love for Hiram. Blessed is my servant Hiram Smith, for I, the Lord, love him because of the integrity of his heart and because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. Hiram was unwavering, even in the face of death. Following one period of great deprivation and persecution, he wrote, I thank God that I felt a determination to die rather than to deny the things which my eyes had seen, which my hands had handled, the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated, and which I had borne testimony to wherever my lot had been cast. And I can assure my beloved brethren that I was was enabled to bear as strong a testimony when nothing but death presented itself as ever I did in my life. From the Prophet Joseph and Hiram we can learn many valuable lessons. I share just these two examples today. In a letter dated March 15, 1844, just a few months before his martyrdom, Hiram wrote, Now therefore I say unto you, you must cease preaching your miraculous things, and let the mysteries alone until by and by. Preach faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance and baptism for the remission of sins, the laying on of the hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, teaching the necessity of strict obedience under these principles, reasoning out of the scriptures, proving them unto the people. Cease your schisms and divisions and your contentions. Humble yourselves. Close quote. And then from the prophet Joseph, there are those who profess to be saints who are too apt to murmur and find fault. When any advice is given which comes in opposition to their feelings, even when they themselves ask for counsel, much more so when counsel is given unasked for, which does not agree with their notion of things. But brethren, we hope for a better things from the most of you. We trust that you desire counsel from time to time and that you will cheerfully conform to it whenever you receive it from a proper source. These inspired statements from Hiram and Joseph to Church members in their day are certainly appropriate for Church members today. While standing in Nauvoo at the foot of the headstone of these noble men, I had the impression that they would have me counsel all members of the Church to remain anchored to the basic and simple principles of the gospel, study the scriptures, look to the leaders of the Church for guidance in these troubled times. Brothers and sisters, be careful of the schisms, divisions, and contentions that are among us today. Keep the commandments so the Holy Ghost will be with you in your search for truth and knowledge. I bear humble witness that Joseph Smith is one of the great noble ones to come to the earth. He and his brother Hiram deserve our honor, respect, and gratitude, as do other members of their family.
who assisted with the restoration of the fullness of the gospel. I testify that President Ezra Taft Benson is the prophet of God at this time, and the apostles and other general authorities who are seated on this stand are ordained of God to preside over the Church. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, stands at the head of the Church. Our Heavenly Father lives and watches over each of His children. To this I humbly testify. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, President Holland, for that beautiful prayer. It is wonderful to have President Benson with us as we open this great World Conference of the Church. His smile upon us and the wave of his hand mean much to all of us. Wherever we go, at home or abroad, we receive the same request. Give our love to President Benson. President, I am confident I speak for all who participate with us today when I say we respect you, we honor you, we love you as the prophet of the Lord in our time. We regret that you will be unable to speak to us in your behalf. I convey your love and blessing upon the saints everywhere, and likewise your testimony as spoken on previous occasions. These are your own words. No other single influence has had so great an impact on this earth as the life of Jesus Christ. We cannot conceive of our lives without His teachings. Without Him we would be lost in a mirage of beliefs and worship, born in fear and darkness where the sensual and materialistic hold sway. We are far short of the goal He set for us. But we must never lose sight of it, nor must we forget that our great climb toward the light, toward perfection, would not be possible except for His teachings, His life, His death, and His resurrection. I testify that Christ is the light to all mankind. He has pointed, marked out, and lighted the way. Sadly, many individuals and nations have extinguished that light and have attempted to supplant his gospel with coercion and the sword. But even to those who reject him, he is the light which shineth in darkness. Thank you, our prophet dear, and please be assured of our prayers. May our Heavenly Father continue to bless you. Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Council of the Twelve will now speak to us. My dear sisters, I appreciate all that has been said and also the music which has been given us in this meeting. We've been inspired and uplifted. Very difficult to follow these wonderful women and Elder Ballard. I sense in a very deep and serious way the responsibility I have in speaking to you. I humbly seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. I wish to affirm 
also, as Elder Ballard has done at the outset, that you are very precious, each of you, regardless of your circumstances. You occupy a high and sacred place in the eternal plan of God, our Father in heaven. You are his daughters, precious to him, loved by him, and very important to him. His grand design cannot succeed without you. A few days ago, a letter came to the office addressed to President Benson. I wish to read a portion of it and then perhaps comment on it. I will not use the writer's name. She may be listening somewhere, and I would not wish to embarrass her in any way. I will call her Virginia. With that change, I read a part of her letter. Dear President Benson, my name is Virginia. I'm 14 years old, and a matter has been on, on my mind a lot lately. In the scriptures, I could not seem to find anywhere whether women may enter into the celestial kingdom if they are worthy. Also, when someone such as Joseph Smith had a vision of the celestial kingdom, he only seemed to see men there. I've prayed about it, but felt that I needed your words. In the scriptures, they talk about a woman being blessed if she is righteous, but not about celestial glory. This truly bothers me. If we are all Heavenly Father's children, then why do the scriptures say that men are to rule over women? And why in the scriptures was Eve created from Adam? I may be foolish, but I honestly do not understand. I love the gospel, and I am learning of its truth. I have a testimony, and I know that I have a divine purpose in life. But I suppose what I am asking is, are men more important than women? And can women go to the celestial kingdom also? I am still young and learning, and I need help in this matter. Thank you so much. Lovingly, Virginia. Because President Benson is unable to speak to us, I will try to respond to your letter, and in the process, I speak to all who are with you in this great gathering this evening. Your letter was acknowledged by the Secretary to the First Presidency, but I feel it is so sincere in tone that it deserves a more complete answer. And perhaps the questions you ask are on the minds of many women young women of your age, women of your mother's age, and women of your grandmother's age, be they single, married, or whatever their circumstances. First, you ask whether women may enter into the celestial kingdom. Of course they may. They are as eligible to enter the celestial kingdom as are men, worthiness being the determining factor for both. On February 16, 1832, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were given a remarkable vision. The Lord spoke with words both wonderful and challenging. Listen to him. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. I am satisfied that he speaks here of his daughters as well as his sons. Infinite shall be the reward of each, and everlasting shall be his or her glory. In this same revelation, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon 
bear eloquent testimony concerning the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Listen to this. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Note that in this tremendous declaration both sons and daughters are mentioned. While it's true that in the verses which follow, man is spoken of, I am confident that the word is used in a generic sense to include both men and women. The Revelation then speaks of those who receive the testimony of Jesus, who are baptized after the manner of his burial, and who keep the commandments, and promises that they shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the Son, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the Son of the firmament is written of as being typical. Are women included in those who shall partake of such glory? Most assuredly. As a matter of fact, in attaining the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, the man cannot enter without the woman, neither can the woman enter without the man. The two are inseparable as husband and wife in eligibility for that highest degree of glory. If she lives worthy of it, hers will be a glory as celestial and eternal as his. Never doubt it, Virginia. Only live to be worthy of that glory which is available to you as well as to your brothers. Some who are not married through no fault of their own ask whether they will always be denied the highest degree of glory in that kingdom. I am confident that under the plan of a loving Father and a divine Redeemer, no blessing of which you are otherwise worthy will forever be denied you. Beyond the wonderful and descriptive words found in sections 76 and 137, we know relatively little concerning the celestial kingdom and those who will be there. At least some of the rules of eligibility for acceptance in that kingdom are clearly set forth. But other than that, we are given little understanding. However, I repeat that I am confident that the daughters of God will be as eligible as will be the sons of God. This should be a glorious goal for every woman in the Church. It should be a constant motivation to live with honor, to live with integrity, to live with virtue, to live with love and service. Do not be disturbed, my dear young friend, by the fact that the word man and the word men are used in Scripture without also mentioning the words woman and women. I emphasize that these terms are generic, including both sexes. They are so used in the Scripture and have been used in other writings through the centuries of time. For instance, the Declaration of Independence, which led eventually to the establishment of the United States of America, includes these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal. Know that the writers used the word man. Do you suppose for one moment that they did not intend their declaration to include women also? They might have said all men, women, and children, but they simply used the word men in its generic sense. The next question you ask is why Eve was created from Adam. I can only respond that an all-wise creator did it that way. However, as I have noted before, there is something very interesting about this situation. In the sequence of events that set forth in the scripture, God first created the earth, and the earth was without form and void. He then separated the light from the darkness and the waters from the land. Then came the creation of vegetation of all kinds, giving the beauty of trees and grass, flowers and shrubs. Then followed the creation of animal life in the sea and upon the land. Having looked over all of this, he declared it to be good. He then created man in his own likeness and image. Then, as his final creation, the crowning of his glorious work, he created woman. I like to regard Eve as his masterpiece after all that had gone before the final work before he rested from his labors. I do not regard her as being in second place to Adam. She was placed at his side as an helpmeet. They were together in the garden. They were expelled together, and they labored together in the world in which they were driven. Now, Virginia, you call attention to the statement in the scriptures that Adam should rule over Eve. You ask why this is so. I do not know. I regrettably recognize that some men have used this through centuries of time as justification for abusing and demeaning women, but I am confident also that in so doing they have demeaned themselves and offended the Father of us all, who, I know, loves his daughters just as he loves his sons. I sat with President David O. McKay on one occasion when he talked about that statement in Genesis. His eyes flashed with anger as he spoke of despotic husbands and stated that they would have to make an accounting of their evil actions when they stand to be judged by the Lord. He indicated that the very essence of the spirit of the gospel demands that any governance in the home must be done only in righteousness. My own interpretation of that sentence is that the husband shall have a governing responsibility to provide for, to protect, to strengthen, and shield the wife. Any man who belittles or abuses or terrorizes or who rules in unrighteousness will deserve, and I believe, receive the reprimand of a just God who is the eternal father of both his sons and daughters. You ask whether men are more important than women. I'm going to turn that question back to you. Would any of us be here, either men or women, without the other? The scripture states that God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. He commanded them together to multiply and replenish the earth. Each is a creation of the Almighty, mutually dependent and equally necessary for the continuation of the race. Every new generation in the history of mankind 
is a testimony of the necessity for both man and woman. You say in your letter, I do have a testimony, and I know that I have a divine purpose in life. You do have a divine purpose. Indeed, you do. There is that same element of divinity in you and your sisters as there is in your brothers. All of us are here as part of a divine plan made by a loving Father who is concerned with our immortality and eternal life. The mortal sphere in which we live is preparatory to that which will follow when we return to dwell with God our Father, provided we live worthy of that privilege. You state that most scriptures address to men. Yes, some of it is in a specific sense, with reference to priesthood duties and obligations, and some of it in a generic sense, as I have indicated. I remind you of a great and remarkable revelation given through the Prophet Joseph Smith to his wife Emma, and applicable to every woman in the Church. For the Lord said in concluding this revelation that this is my voice unto all. In the first verse of this revelation, the Lord states that all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. Great and true are these words of divine promise. The revelation which follows these opening words is rich in counsel and praise, in instruction and in promise to Emma Smith and to every other woman who heeds the word of the Lord as set forth therein. I hope, therefore, my dear young friend, that you will not worry over these matters. I hope, rather, that you will go forward living a life of righteousness, seeking to know the will of the Lord and following it, strengthening others by reason of your service and testimony, and praying in righteousness to the Father of us all. Be assured that He loves you. Be assured that we all love you. May His choicest blessings attend you as you go forward with your life in righteousness. Always let your Father in heaven be your friend to whom you may go in prayer. And now, speaking of prayer, I touch on another matter. Last April, I spoke to the regional representatives of the Church as I have done for a number of years on each occasion when they come for general conference. These are training meetings where the regional representatives get information that they may carry with them across the Church. There is nothing secret or hidden about what is done there. However, recently I heard that someone had secured a copy of my talk looking upon that as a singular accomplishment as if it had been given in a secret and sinister manner designed to keep it from the world. This is nonsense. I am therefore, on this occasion, going to take the liberty of rereading that portion of the talk, which pertains to a matter over which some few men of the Church appear to be greatly exercised. I give it to all in this forum because of the activities of a few who evidently are seeking to lead others in the paths which they are following. I speak of those who advocate the offering of prayers to our Mother in Heaven. I quote from that earlier address. This practice started in private prayer and is beginning to spread to prayers offered in some of our meetings. 
It was Eliza R. Snow who wrote the words, Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I have a mother there. It has been said that the Prophet Joseph Smith made no correction to what Sister Snow had written. Therefore, we have a mother in heaven. Therefore, some assume that we may appropriately pray to her. Logic and reason would certainly suggest that if we have a father in heaven, we have a mother in heaven. That doctrine rests well with me. However, in light of the instruction we have received from the Lord Himself, I consider it inappropriate for anyone in the Church to pray to our Mother in Heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ set the pattern for our prayers. In the Sermon on the Mount, He declared, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When the resurrected Lord appeared to the Nephites and taught them, he said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. While he was among them, he further taught them by example and precept concerning this practice. The record states that he himself also knelt upon the earth, And behold, he prayed unto the Father, and the things which he prayed cannot be written, and the multitude did bear record who heard him. Further he said, Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. On another occasion Jesus departed out of the midst of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth, and he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen, and it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all of them that shall believe in their words. And so, my sisters, I might continue with other specific instances from the Scripture. But search as I have, I find nowhere in the Standard Works an account where Jesus prayed other than to His Father in heaven or where He instructed the people to pray other than to His Father in heaven. I have looked in vain for any instance where any president of the Church, from Joseph Smith to Ezra Taft Benson, has offered a prayer to our Mother in heaven. I suppose those who use this expression and who try to further its use are well-meaning, but they are misguided. The fact that we do not pray to our Mother in Heaven in no way belittles or denigrates her. That is the end of the quotation of the talk I gave earlier, to which I may add that none of us can add to or diminish the glory of her of whom we have no revealed knowledge. Now, in conclusion, may I express my gratitude to you faithful Latter-day Saint women, now numbered in the millions and found across the earth. Great is your power for good. Marvelous are your talents and devotion. Tremendous is your faith and your love for the Lord, for His work, and for His sons and daughters. Continue to live the gospel. Magnify it before all of your associates. Your good works will carry more weight than any words you might speak. 
Walk in virtue and truth with faith and faithfulness. You are part of an eternal plan, a plan designed by God, our eternal Father. Each day is a part of that eternity. I know that many of you carry terribly heavy burdens. May your associates in the Church, your brethren and sisters, help you with those burdens. May your prayers ascend to Him who is all-powerful, who loves you, and who can bring to bear forces and factors which can help you. This is a work of miracles. You know it, and I know it. It is easy for me to tell you not to become discouraged, but I say it nonetheless as I urge you to go forward in faith. May you be blessed for the strength, with strength for the work of the day and with love who are, for all who are entrusted to your care. You know this work is true, as do I. You know that God, our Eternal Father, lives and that His Son, Jesus Christ, born of Mary, as the only begotten of the Father, was and is the Redeemer of the world. You know that their work has been restored in this dispensation through the instrumentality of the Prophet Joseph Smith. You can bear testimony of that, as I can and do, as I leave my love and my blessing upon you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.